to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. Dear old Marks and Spencer astonished the city recently by announcing some good news. For what seems forever, this once most hallowed of high street emporiums has been dripping disappointing financial news from every pore. But some of the newer results show improved sales in food and, surprisingly, given that they've been in the doldrums for so long, improved sales of clothing. M&S has had a torrid time, so any encouraging announcements are welcome. The chairman today is Archie Norman. He used to be the boss of Asda and ITV. I'll come to him shortly. My first-hand knowledge of the company goes back years, way before Norman showed up. The man I remember with most affection was Marcus Seif, who, unlike Norman and his predecessors, was part and parcel of the original Marks and Spencer family. Marcus Seif, the Baron Seif of Brimpton, if we're being grand, was the chairman of M&S from 1972 to 1982. Seif was big and burly. In his office in the summer of 1980, he was his usual sharp-witted, bluff self, drawing on an outsized cigar. Marcus Seif was shrewd and cultured. He'd read economics at Cambridge. His physicality and his lined, world-weary face with a boxer's nose reminded me of a fight promoter. He'd served in World War II in the Royal Artillery, achieving the rank of Colonel, with an OBE for gallantry. He had a quick, sometimes earthy humour. He could be blunt, disarmingly so, but never discourteous. Jowl face hidden by blue cigar smoke, his large desk lost beneath a trove of family photographs in silver frames, glinting in the afternoon sun. I wondered... Who polished the silver, Marcus? Not my job, he laughed. Should be. Make a change from fretting over the damn books. Well, how was business? I wondered. Why ask, he said. I'm never going to say we're on our knees. We're not, by the way. And if we were, I'd never say so. Competition's cutthroat. No different to how it's always been. He'd been married four times and was usually keen to talk about his family. The family's fine. You're always polite, John, and it's nice of you to inquire about my family. But you didn't come to talk about that, now did you? He smiled, drawing on his cigar. This was very Marcus. A compliment followed by a warning tap to the gills. The company's in good shape, he said. We do our best. His shopkeeper's finger was in a thousand pies. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the grocer's daughter from Grantham, stocked her pantry with M&S products. 
The Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, liked to wear M&S suits. Seif was a robust supporter of Israel. In 1948, David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first Prime Minister, sought his advice about supplies and transport for its defence ministry. You never take your eye off the basics in the business, Seif told me. How much money is in the company? How the shares are doing? Small investors love M&S. It causes us administrative problems, but it's a nice dilemma. You question yourself all the time. Are we overstretched? Have we too many outlets? Or do we need more? Shall we run this line or that? Are people on the shop floor doing a good job? Are the managers up to scratch? He drew on his Cuban cigar. Its rich perfume filled the room. He looked at me. You never, you know, ever forget the competition. That's crucial. And you think to yourself, is this a happy ship? We've got all these grand schemes. We sit here on the bridge and think M&S must be a really good place to work. But then sometimes you wonder, are we just fooling ourselves? After all, would you tell your boss they're running a lousy setup, John? I told him I'd been self-employed most of my life. He said he liked people who lived on their talents. Don't forget the worries, I said. Yes, but you've got to admire people who survive without company pensions and all the trimmings. Do you ever feel secure? Often, I laughed. He laughed too. Yes, but you're a free thinker, John. You're not beholden to anybody. I told him, of course I was beholden, as is everybody, if only to themselves and their family. Family's a great driver, he said. It's an incentive that's overlooked. It drives people. It makes them determined. Marcus Seif was always full of life's wisdoms. In M&S, he told me, we mustn't be complacent. You can't sit still in business. If you're doing that, you're just going backwards or treading water. We're strong in some areas. People want what we're selling. There are other areas which aren't so good. Which ones are they, I asked. Oh, come on, John. You know me better than that. I'm not going to go into it. The competition's quite strong enough without me helping them. What do you take me for? We laughed. Don't answer that, he said. Since Marcus Seif's time, there's been carnage on the high street. Seif would have shuddered at the 2021 news that its huge store on Oxford Street, near London's Marble Arch, is to be redeveloped as offices and a smaller shop. It opened in 1930 and was known to the staff as The Arch. M&S's reputation for quality at a fair price has been under assault. Its image had become staid. Garments and groceries are a competitive furnace. M&S fortunes have gone up and down, mainly down. It's had redundancies, closures, shareholder dissent, a falling share price, city criticism, clothes which too few want to buy, and a succession of big-name bosses. There have been drastic changes in what M&S sells. It's a difficult feat to attract new customers when generations of shoppers have grown up with the notion that M&S is where mum and dad and granny and granddad bought their socks and pants. Heritage can be an encumbrance, 
History can't insulate M&S from online assault. Like Tesco, M&S began with a market stall. Michael Marx was a refugee who fled the poverty of Poland, arriving in England in the 1880s. As a peddler in Yorkshire, he went door-to-door selling haberdashery. In 1884, he rented a market stall in Leeds and ten years later went into partnership with Thomas Spencer, a cashier with Dewhurst. By 1900, they had 36 penny bazaars with the slogan, Don't ask the price, it's a penny. Over the decades, it's been all change at M&S. Archie Norman, the ex-ASDA boss, is now the chairman, with Steve Rowe as the chief executive. The duo were preceded by notable names. Norman's reputation is that of a turnaround specialist. He's as smooth as a snooker ball, markedly different to Marcus Seif's gruff and muscular charm. A professional manager, Norman's cool, wily, at one time a Tory MP. The second of five sons of two doctors, he's ex-Charterhouse in Cambridge, with an MBA from Harvard Business School. In another life, when he took the helm at Asda, it was a basket case, or as he told me, a shipwreck, saddled with a billion pounds of debt, a sinking share price, and being pummeled by Tesco and Sainsbury. At Asda, he was accused of seeking publicity and being gimmicky. One newspaper said that he was the Paul Gascoigne of retailing, playing to the crowd, Gazza's clowning as famous as his skills as a footballer. I thought the description was over the top. Unsurprisingly, so did Norman. It's ridiculous, he told me. My background's that of a professional manager. I haven't got a background in public relations. Far from it. I'd be happy not to have any publicity. For me, as long as I can get good publicity for Asda. It's easy to see why he was accused of gimmickry. He once stood up in front of 500 Asda managers and swore allegiance to the best-selling banana, all part of his ambition to give Asda a human face. He had a suggestion box at Asda called Tell Archie. It's the best in Britain, he told me. Everybody gets a reply. He introduced incentive schemes. Two red Jaguars, former director's cars, could be won by an employee who had most increased the sale of a chosen item. After a month, they had to return the cars. We give them a full tank of petrol, Archie said, and for a month their neighbours can look over the fence and wonder if they've got a new job or being promoted. I asked what it was that motivated him. Well, I don't think you can run a business like mine, he said, if your basic interest is just in the accounting side. My interest has always been in changing very large organisations, and hopefully for the better. Did he have an ego, I wondered? I don't see myself as egocentric, not at all. When he joined the forlorn Asda, his peers thought him daft. Well, I was in a queue of one for the job, he said. 
He wanted workers to be called colleagues. It's standard practice today, of course, but I still think it's tokenism. We want a single-status company in Asda. Nobody in the company has a separate title, Archie told me. We make no distinctions between staff and management. We don't have a special car park slot for directors. In fact, we don't like company cars at all. Jolly good, I said, but wasn't all this, well, a little bit gimmicky, cosmetic, going on the absurd? I don't think it's cosmetic, he said. It's very important for managers to be closely in touch with customers. The best way for that is managers to be in touch with colleagues on the shop floor. You can't grasp the detail unless you're alongside colleagues who are serving the customer. The best way to do that is to take away artificial barriers that get between chief executives and checkout operators. Archie Norman and his management pals, sorry, colleagues, tore down the walls in the head office. I'd seen it before in many other places, Lotus Cars being one. The founder of Lotus, Colin Chapman, told me, yes, and it's a bloody nuisance. There's no privacy. That's why we stuck bits of bamboo and pot plants all over the place as temporary walls. It seemed a good idea at the time. Oh, we all have good ideas. I bet you've had a few. He was right. I have. Colin Chapman had a short fuse, but he could always charm birds off trees. I liked his frankness. Archie Norman was getting into his stride. The head office, he told me, was divided up into lots of offices. Everyone was sitting in their own cupboard. We decided to take the walls down. We abolished offices altogether. I don't have an office. It's all open plan. But people said, hang on a minute, we won't be able to concentrate. This led to another Archie Normanism, the red cap strategy. Yes, we introduced red baseball caps, he said. If you want to concentrate and not be disturbed, you have to put on a red hat which means nobody's allowed to interrupt you. You can have a maximum of two hours wearing a red cap. After that, you can take it off and answer the phones again. But what if the call's private? I asked him. Ah, well, we overkilled on meeting rooms, so you can disappear into one of those if you need a bit of privacy. Gimmicks or not, Archie Norman did his job salvaging Asda and selling it to the US giant Walmart in 1999 for a chunky £6.7 billion. At Marks & Spencer, Norman paid a thumping £750 million for a half share in Ocado to deliver M&S online instead of Waitrose goods. Profits elusive in online groceries, but it's where shoppers turned when Covid took hold. Covid gave Norman a powerful mandate to accelerate changes that were long overdue. He's opened new stores and closed others. Trying to turn a big business round is like an oil tanker changing course. It takes time, care and fortitude, and it's not without risk. 
In July and August 2020, there were nearly 8,000 redundancies. The blame put on Covid and poor sales of homeware and clothing. M&S has 78,000 staff and over a 1,000 shops. The company has been moving off the high street into out-of-town retail parks to which families can drive, spend time and enjoy free parking. Local councils have made it worse for city centre stores by reducing parking, increasing charges, closing streets, favouring cyclists and pedestrians while making motorists feel unwelcome, like pariahs. As if brutal competition isn't sufficient, by reconfiguring towns and streets, sometimes marooning old established city centre stores, councils have further hobbled the likes of M&S and John Lewis. In clothing, M&S is not in competition with the ultra-cheap, hyper-fast fashion operators who are setting the pace online. But it has many other powerful contenders, among them Zara, one of the world's most successful outfits. Retail is so volatile, any complacency can spell disaster. M&S has forged new deals with a quartet of fashion brands, Sea Salt, a private Cornish company, Phase 8, Hobbs and Jewels. Clothes will be sold online and in stores. It's rescued the upmarket Jaeger from administration, though it hasn't bought Jaeger's 63 shops. The name of the game in retail today is to buy a name, a brand, and then to ditch the shops. In November of 2020, M&S made its first loss in 94 years as a public company. It lost £87 million, compared with a profit of £158 million in 2019. But now, at last, it's beginning to look as if there's a turnaround in its fortunes. Sales and profits are looking healthier. There's light at the end of what was a very dark tunnel. Nobody knows yet, even now, if Norman has bitten off more than is realistically chewable. And it's not just better financial progress that's kept M&S in the headlines. It recently announced that its workers, oh sorry, I've done it again, colleagues, will have pronoun badges so you'll know how to address them. Some people applaud the move, while others think it's silly and a bad case of virtue signalling. So M&S could now find itself, I suppose, a contender in the culture wars. What customer in the future will dare to ask for men's socks? And could I have, please, a pair of ladies' knickers? You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.